boundaries, you have to have good self-esteem. Because without good self-esteem, you cannot enforce the boundaries. You have to believe that you're worth it. You have to believe that your time for yourself is just as important as the time you give to somebody else. And it is not just because you're giving time to somebody else. It makes you a good person. You can be a good person and be burnt out. That's not what you want. And you're, you're better off being alive, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? Than being burnt out and dead. How do you get? 10,000 people to take a step to the left. What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are just some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with Ordinary Don't Belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Our guest today is a leading authority in the field of women in the workplace and well-being, an international TEDx speaker and the author of Octopus on a Treadmill. Our guest has spoken at Oxford University and has featured in Thrive Grow global businesswoman and metro her booked octopus on a treadmill was described by joanna lumley obe as something that every working mother needs to read she is an fcc a certified accountant has worked as an it program manager director at bp bbc and pwc Get ready to learn from the wisdom of a female explorer who blends the science of the west Eastern philosophy and the wisdom of Africa and her approach to women's lifestyles. Gifty Enright, Gifty, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It really is an honor. Uh, it's a real pleasure. And thank you for joining us there in London today uh, in, mm. in the UK. Now, I, I gather that you weren't born in the UK. So where did you grow up and what was life like you for a child? Yeah, I was actually born in Ghana, in West Africa, and and life for me as a child was just fun. Do you know? Um, it was just fun. As in, I enjoyed my life. I, you know, you had the freedom to run around. I, we had the extended family. You felt safe. Do you know? Everybody that was older than you had the freedom to tell you off. Um, and it really, for me, it's an experience I will not trade for anything. And obviously, I didn't know any different until I came to the UK. Uh, and then I saw a, a different side of life. But um, I came to UK to um, study, and that's where I did um, accountancy. And then I, I crossed over into um, IT and then started doing transformation programs, you know, digital transformation, etc. Uh, but yeah, I mean, for me, I, I think one of the gifts my parents gave me was my childhood. Beautiful. And I love how you talk about that your childhood was fun. 
And look, I haven't been to Ghana. Actually, I haven't even ventured into Africa, um, which is, is definitely on my list after uh, visiting 60 countries already. So, I, I mean, my perception when you talk about your fun lifestyle, that it maybe was quite simple in a way. And when you compare life in Ghana as a child and then maybe moving to London where things are quite busy and built up, from a happiness point of view, the pe- people in Ghana, did you find they were a lot happier because life was simple and they didn't have to worry about all these extra things that you might find in a big city? Yeah, so uh, yes and no. So um, they were happier as in, you're yeah, asking if you are, at that time life was a lot simpler uh, then. And so, I mean, Jesus, I'd never even heard of depression. Do you know, um, depression and anxiety and everything. And the, the poverty there was real and it's still real, uh, but it's almost foiled by the extended family, by the close personal relationships. So um, on one level, it's really hard when it comes to, I guess, um, the financials, you know, and wealth. So it's hard that way. But on another side, there's the abundance of relationships, of of feeling held by society, of never feeling alone, the sort of things that lead to anxiety and depression and all that kind of stuff. And so it kind of foils the actual physical hardships because you have people who don't know where their next meal is going to come from, but, you know, they know where they can go and have a laugh and that sort of thing. Right. So, and it is changing. Africa is, I mean, I was there in February. It is changing with technology and everything like that, but the poverty is still real. And for me, when you talk about the simplicity is one of the things that I always made sure that I built into my life as in know what matters. It is not the money. You can always get the money. But when you're talking about your close personal relationships, when you're talking about your parents, you don't have them forever. The time you have with them is finite, (laughs) you know, and you need to make sure you're capitalizing on those things that bring depth and, and richness to your life outside money because you can always go chase after the money. Wow. There's some passion in there and I love it. So, because because i've noticed when i've gone to you know say areas of the world where where there might be poverty might even be considered third world etc but i always yeah. find they seem a lot happier than yeah. the people that that have everything they possibly want pretty much um at their you know, at their disposal in a way and so i'm always curious just to really understand and so thank you for sharing that it's, it's a it's a lovely insight for you as a child, though, you know, you're surrounded by lots of wisdom with your with the extended mm-hmm. family and people around yeah. you and obviously loving, caring relationships. What was the big dream for you when you were a little kid, you know, running around? Was there anything you aspired to be or do in this world? So it's interesting because now, you know, I specialize in women's empowerment and everything. That was always in my blood believe it or not, because my great-great-great-grandmother even, uh, she was called Yasantua, and she actually, and then this is, you know, they're going about it forever, and she led the men in her village, she actually led a rebellion against the British. This was in the colonial days, right? 
Um, and so as such a powerful woman to be able to motivate the men, you know, to lead them to war, that was something that always stood out for me. And we knew of this story and we were told this when we were growing up. And I mean, when, when we, cause I've got two boys, um, and, uh, whenever we go to Ghana, I take them there to meet the current queen so they can really know their history firsthand that they come from a line of very strong, powerful women. Now, um, the, the tribe I come from in, in, in Ghana is a matrilineal society. So I've been surrounded by strong women all my life. And it never once crossed my mind that I couldn't do anything that a man could do. Never once crossed my mind. And I, and I also went to a girls' school. So it was, you know, that female identity was very strong in me always. And I always saw myself as leading the charge for, for women. Always. It was always in my blood somewhere. That's interesting. <laughs> you know, when we hear about, you know, a strong woman who leads something, did you get to meet your grandmother? You spent uh, So my great, great grandmother. No, no, great, she, great she was dead. She was dead before I came along. Yeah. Okay. And, and how would they describe her? You know, you talk about a strength of a woman. Was she someone yeah. very humble that would, when she spoke, it had real gravitas or was she someone that just, you know, had a real presence. Do, do you know kind of a little bit in of, of what type of human she was to have that characteristic to be a strong leader? Yes, it's definitely a strong presence. Definitely a strong presence. Um, and I don't know about humble, but um, it being a, a matrilineal society, if you like, the, the secession goes down the woman's side, right? So really, it, it is. So she, she was a queen, she was a queen mother of the village, and so only her children could, you know, come to the throne. If you so, the power was coming down her side, and that's how it worked. Because the theory um, in that matrilineal society is it is the women that take care of the children. So don't give the power to the men, because you know that might be squandered. But if you give it to the women, the children will always be taken care of. That is the thinking um, behind it. But she was definitely fierce. So. Um, I didn't uh, meet her because, you know, she was dead before I came along. But, I mean, the, the, the current queen mother is my cousin, for example. So whenever we go there, I always make sure I make a trip uh, to go because I want to still be connected, you know, with who I am, with the history. Um, but she would have come from, you know, a lineage of women leadership. And so it wasn't a matter of, um, waiting for the men to make the decision. That said, that said, it is also a very chauvinistic society. And you have that dichotomy. I mean, I, I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, you know, as in, in, in a marriage, the man is always the leader and male leadership, blah, blah, blah. At the same time, it, it manages to work in parallel, you know, uh, with, women holding the power, uh, it being passed down the, the, you know, the maternal line uh, and, and that way. So it's a very intriguing concept. Oh, I'm loving this. <laughs> so in New Zealand, like I come from New Zealand and we have the Maori Aboriginal, you know, people there. And we talk about, there's a word called whakapapa, which whakapapa is kind of like your lineage and it's, it's the kind of an unbroken chain or DNA from your ancestors through to the present and then 
what kind of legacy in a way you're leaving for future generations that you'll never meet. In, in the stories and the way that it's been passed down in regards to what your family has done and you talk about your great-grandmother and maybe even before then, what do you think is the legacy that has really left for that part of the world that it, that's currently created? What, what is the legacy that you see that's, you know, come from the past to what you're seeing at the moment? So for me, the legacy is that the men are not afraid to carry the women, right? The men are not afraid to carry the women. And so in certain spheres where the men are still leading, and even when you come across a chauvinistic attitudes and all the rest of it, what happens is um, when a woman breaks through or if a woman becomes queen because of the way, you know, the, the, the succession works, the men then are not afraid to carry the women, which... I think if we brought that to the corporate boardroom, right, that is an allyship right there. Mm. Because um, in the workplace, what you have is one of the biases that women face in the workplace is performance bias. As in, people assume the man is going to be better and know what they're talking about. And if a man is standing there with a the woman and whatever in a conference, the woman has got to be the man's PA. Do you know, that is just the, the, the perception that people would just go straight to the man for for the actual power contact right but and that is just um you know because of performance bias that is just you know the way society is in terms of performance bias but then if we have the men not being afraid to carry the women because currently the women still have to be carried because we're not a parity in the workplace we're not a parity in anything anyway <laughs> right and if the men are not afraid to carry the women we have that inbuilt allyship and it is only in that way that we're going to start getting the women breaking through. And hopefully at some point we will get parity. And when a woman breaks through, she is also given the recognition she deserves. Wow. Yes, I totally agree. And, you know, for me, I've always wanted to, like, I, I always like it when companies have co-CEOs and co-CEOs mm. with, uh, with different genders. Uh, and so I, I can't wait till our company gets big enough where I can actually put a co-CEO in place because I think the the different perspectives and the, the different strengths that can come from both sides of the gender uh, can really, really make a difference. Absolutely. Going to go, uh, so, so talk, you know, we, we've gone from there. You're, when you were going through, say, high school and before you came to the UK, would you consider yeah. yourself more of a leader or a follower? I, I, I was always a leader. I was always a leader. Um, maybe something to do with being, um, I don't know, the first firstborn or something, right? <laughs> um, uh, you know, so I, I was the first girl for for for, for my dad as well. So um, I, I was always always not afraid to be my own path, and and, and my father was. Um, always treated us all as the same like you, you know i mean when it came to you teaching the kids to drive and everything you, some families is like it's got to be the boys no he wasn't doing that it's like the girls everybody you know he treated us all the same so i never felt that i, I couldn't lead it, it never even crossed my mind that i couldn't lead you know and i was also encouraged to have that individuality and also, 
at some level in my life, and I've always had it, I've always felt on the margins, believe it or not. I, I have never been mainstream anything. Um, and so when I came to the UK and I realized I was black, because before that I didn't realize I was black. In Ghana, everybody was black, so the color was not an issue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when I came to the UK, I realized, oh my God, I've got an accent and I'm black. I go, oh dear. All right. but, <laughs> but then, because I'd always on some level felt on the margins, it, it didn't phase me do you know it's like okay what's new again i'm going to be individual i might be the only voice in the room i might be the only diversity so what do you know so um i have never ever been afraid to be a leader is it lonely sometimes absolutely is it terrifying sometimes when everybody seems to be doing the lemming thing and then you're the only one you know saying the other thing absolutely but I've always been comfortable with that discomfort. Mm. I, and I think that's important. You know, when we look at highly successful people, they they lean into the uncomfortable. They don't shy mm. away from it. Yes, and, and it is terrifying, as you say. We're all human beings. And if anyone ever said that jumping into an uncomfortable situation at times wasn't terrified, I think they're probably lying. <laughs> mm, I agree. <laughs> So what drew you initially to study accountancy and then move into IT? So I wish I could say something deep about that, right? But it was just because it made good money. That's it. That's it. It was there. I could do it. It made good money. I thought if I did accountancy, I'll always have a job. So there was nothing deep and profound about it. And that is the honest truth. <laughs> And it's interesting, you know, as we look at skill shortages around the world, I always kind of think of, you know, when you talk about finance, it's probably going to be always needed. I'm not sure where the technology yeah. will take over it. And so I think that's, you know, it's a fascinating way of looking at something, obviously a very mature approach when you're establishing yourself early on. Uh, but then IT, you know, what what drew you to IT and you know obviously you got to work with some quite quite large companies yeah yeah I mean I I, I love IT and I still do and I'm always an early adopter you know show me a new piece of tech and I'm there I, I just love I just love tech and I also love new things I'm always learning new things right so I mean I was working as an accountant and um um, this is a Fujitsu at the time, and they were looking for accountants to cross-train into IT because they were implementing an IT system um, for, for finance. So they needed accountants there that could sort of speak to the techies, if you like. Um, and so that's how I got into IT as being the, the, the SME, you know, to be able to explain to the techies that this is what you have to do for it to be to balance and stuff like that. And that's how I got into IT. And I realized I liked it. You know, um, I actually like the, the thinking around it, the, the, the logical bit around it. And, you know, one plus one was always two. Um, and also the way you could take you could take a business process if you like and systemize it and get you know and get a machine to do it and all that. I, I loved all that uh and so um i actually trained um in sap um and, and then went into you know project program management that way uh and then you know sap really at the start the first some of the first modules were just accounting ones and then it went into logistics and now it does basically everything um but yeah yeah so that's how i started into it 
And and so your journey through some of these big companies like BP, BBC and PwC, obviously Mm -hmm. they're, they're large global companies. Yeah. For you, what was it like? You know, you've come from a a village in Ghana. You're now working (laughs) in these big multinational companies. What for you did you um, did you find about the culture that was a bit of a shock when you started working for some of these big companies? Uh, So, what before I started, you know, I'd been in the UK for a while because obviously I studied accountancy here and everything, um, and everybody wanted to work for, you know, a a brand name, you know, gives you that name recognition on the CV uh, and, and, and all that. So, it was exciting, you know, to start with. It was really exciting to be able to have that on your CV. Um, but the work is the same wherever you go. Uh, and what I mean by that is wherever you go, there are people. And wherever there are people, there are problems. Right? And wherever, wherever there are people, there's politics. So it almost doesn't matter. It's almost like um, uh, agnostic in terms of the organizations. I mean, smaller organizations are different from big ones. So in big ones in the culture and everything with the big ones, and so they're not as nimble and everything becomes political and things can get, decisions can get mired in politics. And it's not always the best decision that gets made. It's a decision that will make the manager look good that gets made, right? <laughs> Whereas in smaller organizations, it's quite good because I have run my own businesses before as well. So um, you, you, it's a very different thing. And so in the corporate world, the person that succeeds in the corporate world is quite a different beast you know that person has got to be politically astute they have to be able to massage egos they have to be able to communicate well they have to be able to manage upwards um and and some of these skills are good skills to have um is it necessarily going to prove the best for humanity i'm not so sure well the skills there are the skills that get you to the top um makes you money but when you're looking at your contribution to society, is it really, you know, you're massaging people's egos and making sure that, you know, somebody's performance review, your manager's performance review is going well. Is it what is going to change the world? I'm not so sure. Do you think we're seeing a shift in this culture or, or do you think it's kind of like the Titanic? It's going to be extremely difficult to to kind of shift that really political um, power kind of driven in those bigger corporates? Thankfully, it's shifting. And I tell you why. Now we have diversity, right? So we have diversity of thought. So previously, it was the same people making the same decisions, cut from the same mold. And so it had to only work that way. It is changing now. Now you have diversity, you have women, you have um, uh you know, people from ethnic minorities, uh, you have people uh, perhaps of different sexual orientation all coming in. So you're getting the diversity of thought at the top. And that can only be a good thing. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, when you're talking about millennials and Gen Z, they are not after the money, which is what basically was the carrot. Like when I told you when I was an accountant, it's like, why did you do it? It paid well. They don't think like that anymore, right? They're more worried about the environment and sustainability and their mental health. So the carrot that's been dangled for generations that made people conform to a certain mold, it's not working anymore. For these people, what they're looking for, they're value-driven. 
And so that is also forcing a change in the workplace. And I love hearing that. I think that's so important because when you think about it, that's, you know, some people go, oh, the next generations, they're so different to us. What's well, like, no, you created them. <laughs> you created the space for them to be like that. So you should be very yes. thankful that they have a shift in mentality and a different approach. So now is your time to learn from them what you have already yes. created a space for. And I think sometimes go, oh, they're a different generation. They're different to us. So <laughs> what happened? And it's like, you should actually embrace that because you have opened up pathways, you have uh, broken down barriers, you have shifted biases in a way to allow these beautiful changes to occur. And yes, it's different, but that's a good thing. Yeah, because we're evolving. it is a good thing. And they've also watched us do it the dinosaur way and burn ourselves out. And they don't want that. Do you know, they don't want to pay the very heavy price that we we pay. I mean, if you look at women in the workplace, for example, you know, the options used to be is either don't have children if you want to get to the top, or if you have children somewhere along the line, you're going to have to give up your career or stagnate. Those were the options, mm. do you know? And they don't want that. They want to be able to get to the top and still be a present mother. And there's got to be a model that allows a woman to be able to do that. And that's fascinating. Look, you know, obviously you're talking about this now. For you, uh, you've had children. I yes, yes. So how many children yeah. have you had? I've got two: twenty, twenty-three, and eighteen. Twenty-three and eighteen, and so obviously you had them while you were working mm -hmm. in corporate. Mm -hmm. What was mm -hmm. your experience? Did you take time off? It was brutal. Off? Brutal. It was brutal. My experience was absolutely brutal. Um, and yes, I took time off for for, for both of them. Uh, and so, which meant by time off, I took a year off for both of them, which meant I had to change jobs. Because if you're taking that year off at that time, the maternity leave didn't go that far. So you had to literally give up the job, right? And come and sit at home and look at if you wanted that time with them. And I knew my pathology, as in when I'm working, I'm there fully engaged because I was competitive, I was going to get to the top, rah, rah. And so I took that time that one year off both of them to be able to be with them and be the mother i wanted to be with them and establish some basic foundations before i got sucked up into the workplace again now these days you have flexible working and all that in my time there was no such thing <laughs> right and so you you were lucky if you got to see your kids uh, for two hours a day and then there was a travel and so it was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. And there are things that I'm still retrofitting and there are things that I still feel I have to apologize to my kids about until I die. Right now, I'm hoping women don't have to pay the price that I pay. And I actually paid with my health. And that's why I wrote my book, you know, where I was burnt out and I got to this point where I thought, you know, I have put this ladder against this tree that I want to climb and I got there to the top and I, it was against the wrong tree, right? That was not what I wanted. That was in terms of the values and what I wanted to achieve. I was this small cog somewhere just massaging somebody's ego rather than making the change I want to, 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 to make. Like now when I go to organizations and I'm speaking to senior management and I'm showing them stats and figures about diversity and women and what it is they need to do, they're shocked. They're shocked at what is out there, how bad things are, things that women have to put up with. But now the information is there. Now they're willing and open to hear. And I think this is a very exciting time uh, we're in. The women don't have to, you know, 
pay, you know, with their health or, you know, their children's mental health and all the rest of it. It's really interesting. And I mentioned before we come on the show and for those who listen will will know this as well. So I have a, a baby who's 16 weeks um, as of this conversation. Uh, my wife continued working all the way through she from the she worked up until the night before she had the baby within five days she was back doing two hours a day and she (laughs) wanted to do that it was her choice and and then within where are we within eight weeks she was back working full-time and Mm. obviously we we both work from home we've got the baby here but i can see how you can burn out so easily um i i kind of always have I have this thought now that, and it's a little bit selfish in a way because I'm not sure if I should really say this, but I kind of feel that if you achieve burnout and you don't have children, you don't really have an excuse because you had the choice mm-hmm. to work hard or not. Mm-hmm. When you make the choice to have children, uh, you're on their clock. And yeah. so if you are working full time, and we, we are very fortunate because our baby has slept uh, from about six weeks, she has slept so six and a half hours through to, you know, she's about nine hours at the moment. So we're very fortunate. But for those people that the baby's waking up every hour or two, wow, I, I can it's see. It's brutal. It's brutal. Um, yeah. You know, I used to compete as international athletes in endurance sports and do Ironman where you'd race eight, nine, ten hours yeah. um, constantly. Yeah. But the fatigue yeah. in any of that training or racing over did does not compare to the fatigue you have when you are sleep deprived and you're trying to focus and you're trying to work that is it's a whole nother level well this is it so you're sleep deprived and you go into the workplace and and in my time you had to physically go there none of this working from home with your child on your lap business right <laughs> you have to be there um and you're competing with people with men who've literally just had to roll out of bed and they're there so it was never a level playing field. Mm-hmm. You're tired, you're fed up, your boobs are leaking and all that going on, right? And in my case, having to go and express discreetly in the toilet just for relief and then come back, all those things are happening and others don't have to deal with any of those mm-hmm. challenges, right? And at the same time, you have to be there to be able to deliver, right? And, and people look at parents and think that you made the choice. And well, of course we made the choice, but if we didn't, who's going to pay our pension, Mm, right? right. So this is a societal need, as in somebody has got to have the children. And this is something that has to be looked at, you know, country to country. I mean, I put a blog out on LinkedIn recently where I did a table of uh, the rich countries and how much percentage of the GDP goes to childcare. And it's shameful. It's absolutely shameful when you see it. Um, But why is it that... You know, we, we, we're living in developed countries. That's what we call ourselves. We think we're developed. But when it comes to this very primary thing of the next generation, how we replace ourselves and how we get taken care of and our pension and all that, we leave it to chance and we leave it to individuals and their whims and their sacrifices. And why? It's almost, um, I don't know, Stone Age in the way we think about it when it comes to women and careers it's a it's an interesting dichotomy what you look at here because you know i i know my my wife loves her career but she would also love to spend that time and just be a parent and and i would too to be quite honest i would love to do that too 
So you're always kind of caught between the two, um, you know, unless you're really financially wealthy and you can afford to take that time off. However, if you're very career driven, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, if you take a big break, that in quite often can be quite challenging to get back up to where you were and continue that growth and trajectory that you're in. So, Absolutely. So even as we try and solve this going forward, because I, I, I'm not sure if I've seen the right solution yet. And, and obviously it's good that we keep searching for it because yes, we can have childcare, but that doesn't always, like for some people, they just want to be with their children a lot more. Yeah. And yeah. so it's just yeah. trying to yeah. figure this out. How can we actually do it really well? I don't and it's the choice, mm. right? You, you have different people want different things. Some people, they are an earth mother that's the raison d'etre. They want to be with their children, end of. They don't want a career. Good for them. There are some people who are career driven. And if they're left at home with their kids, they become demented, <laughs> right? That honestly, they become demented. They, they're not best, they're not the best people to be with their kids 24 7. Right. And so for their own mental health, they need mm. to get away and go and do the work and come back and take the children in small doses. Because there is this thing that because you've had a baby, you are an earth mother. It doesn't work like that. That's mm. not everybody's personality. And for some people, you know, like I say, they're not the best person to be with that child 24-7. <laughs> and and so it's looking at the differences, who wants what, and the different types of childcare to suit. And some people want to work part-time, some people want to go the full nine-to-five or whatever. But to have that choice without it proving detrimental to your career. And that, like you say, that solution is still not there. You're fascinating too. And obviously you moved away from Ghana. Did you have family, any family support in in the UK when you, even when you had the children or was it pretty much no. just you and the family? No. So that's no. like so us. I brought my mother over for the first six months to help me. Cause, and again, that's a Ghanaian tradition. That's what you do. Whenever you give birth, wherever you are, your mother comes and helps you out, right? Um, because again, it's very challenging as a new mother, you don't know what you're doing and you need an older mother and, and you know, an older woman to give you that validation, to let you know that you're doing okay and that continue uh, whatever. Because otherwise, if you're just new parents and it's you and your partner, you, you're both new to the job and you don't know what you're doing, it can be quite <laughs> traumatizing, you know. So luckily for me, I maintain that tradition of having that extra pair of hands. And I had my mother here with me six months for both boys. And that was a huge help. And so it meant that when I was going back um, um, to work, you know, I was able to um, leave my baby with somebody that I trusted and then I could relax. Even then I spent half the time in the loo ringing her uh, to make sure that he was all right, you know. Uh, so yeah, it, 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 it's, the different cultures do it differently, mm. you know, and it's picking the best from all the different places and putting it into a solution and getting governments to fund it because this is really important and critical to the whole country for our well-being. Mm, I love that approach. It's, it's a, it's it's you know obviously now that we've totally disrupted the the way we work in a way 
So before we were trying to find solutions around what was something very stable in a way, and this is how we worked. Obviously, there were always people that were um, outside of that. But now we've gone through a period where people thought it was disrupted. It was actually a relatively easy space for a while there because we knew exactly what was happening. The culture now for companies and organizations is the most disrupted it's ever probably been in our entire existence on this planet in a way where now we we don't have like there there is no recipe for any company and every company will need to look at the approach of flexible working in completely different ways and it's not settled it won't be settled for a couple of years because you start to learn more things you know yes we want we'd love to be flexible working work work from home with our children but trying to get that piece to work and and be focused for a long period of time very difficult and and so there's there's that component but there's also those who after two or three years start to realize hey you know what i need to be around people i'm missing the collaboration i yeah this was all fun and games and i enjoyed it to begin with but now it's different and so there's they're going to be constantly moving through the space over the next couple of years and and look i hope we can continue to look at policies and to put provisions in place to really support mm. the next generation in a mm. way that makes sense for everyone. Mm. And and I don't think that's always going to be the same in every country. I think it needs to be different because the lifestyles, the the way we work, the families, how families work, et cetera, are quite different in different countries. Mm. And so mm. it's gonna it's not gonna be a coordinated approach around the world. It's going to need to be specific to uh a, a certain country or even even different regions at times for you you made the choice to step out of corporate what what was the what was the big reason that you decided to leave you you talked about being very career driven very very performance focused what was that catalyst to going out on your own uh, so when I when I, I I got ill um and then I had to battle my way through that um, and when I came out of the other side, I thought every working mother out there needs to know this. And that's why I wrote my book. And so uh, after the book, uh, I did the TEDx and I kept being asked to come and speak, you know, at different places and stuff like that. And I thought, hang on, this is what I want to do, because this is actually what is affecting the change I want. Right. Um and this, yes, I could help, you know, do another IT transformation and everything like that. But yes, it's an IT transformation for a huge company, the end product of which I probably never know. Uh, whereas this one is instant. It's there. I can see as I'm talking to people, the, the <laughs> cogs moving as in, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and I do coaching as well. And when I coach these women, right, who are in burnout back into the point where, because the thing about burnout also makes you very skeptical and very negative and like, what's the point? And when a mother is thinking like that, her children's mental health is in danger, right? So it, when I get these mothers back to the point where they know they own their lives, they're at the center of their lives, for me, it is so fulfilling because it's not just the mother. The mother's partner gets to benefit, the children get to benefit, everybody around her, because women tend to be at the center of a lot of life. So for me, that is a very rewarding thing, as in 
it sets my heart on fire rather than, you know, putting another digital transformation in place. So that is why I thought, hang on, you know, I, I don't want to do the politics anymore. <laughs> I, don't, I really want to transform um, people's life and transform workplaces for, for women so they have an easier ride than I did. So how did you learn that you had burnout? And because I'm imagining it's not the last couple of years, it was it was a little no, bit no. further back. So no. how long ago? And how did you, Rick, or how did you actually learn that it was burnout? So I had a spreadsheet of literally 14 symptoms. You know, this is my accountant background coming in there. I had a spreadsheet of 14 symptoms that I was tracking. And I actually gave it a, um, a red, amber, green status that I used to track to see it was that desperate. 14 symptoms of things that were wrong with me. And I began to the doctors and they're like, oh, you got young children and you got a full-time job. And so the fatigue, that's all normal, right? So nobody was really taking me seriously. And um, I, for some reason, I kind of looked well Um and so people saw, oh, yeah, there's nothing wrong with you. Do you know? And I knew, I knew I wasn't well. Um, and I had, you know, symptoms listed in the book, people. I really don't. <laughs> the 14 was a lot. And, but the main thing was that fatigue and that not wanting to, just putting one foot in front of the other, not enjoying my life, you know, hating what I was doing, being an absent mother. And just thinking, what's the point? Do you know? Um, and then there was all the physical. So that's the emotional bit. But there was all the physical, you know, list uh, of, of the 14. And I went to see at one point, because in the UK, we've got um, the NHS, so medical care is free. Uh, but you can be lounging on, on a waiting list for a year <laughs> on the free, what we call it, waiting to see a consultant. So my husband had had enough and he's like, we need to go private. We need to visit. So that's what we did. And I'm standing at Harley Street and the doctor is looking at me and he's a oh, woman of your age, whatever, whatever. Nah, nah, nah. You know, um, it must be the menopause. I'm like, oh, hang on. <laughs> no, this is not it. This is not it. You're not going to stick me on medication for the rest of my life. There's got to be an easier way, you know. Um, and, and so this is, I was just barely 40 at that time. And, and I thought, no, I'm not going to be doing this. You know, the, 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 the actual in the UK, the age for the menopause, I think it's 50, 51. So it's like 10 years away from that. And they were trying to stick me on medication. I'm not doing this. That's got to be another thing. So I went on my own journey to find out what was wrong with me and um you know so there was the burnout which normally at that time nobody was diagnosing anybody with burnout anyway do you know and so you have a whole cluster of symptoms and yes you know um at that age you know there's a perimenopause there's so your body's changing your hormones are changing but because you're not looking after yourself i wasn't sleeping well i wasn't eating well i wasn't exercising all those things right I, which i didn't know how to because i was too busy working killing myself working and ignoring my children and so um i went on this journey to find out exactly what it is i had to do rather than medication i promised myself if i didn't fix it i will come back and take the medication you know um and i all my 14 symptoms went away by the way right without 
all this medication. And so I realized that, you know, we're medicalizing a lifestyle issue. And that is why I thought, hang on, I need to let other women know about this so they can start looking after themselves so they don't end up on medication and deal with all the incumbent side effects. It's quite a quite a journey, and I love the fact that you're tracking everything. It takes me back to my athlete days when we would track everything. Um, and as someone who's a very perfectionist, I would have done that up until about ten years ago, where I just let go of everything. Um, but you know, obviously, being able to have still have awareness because when burnout, sometimes it, it can really affect and blur the reality of what's going on in a way. And so, to still be really present, I think that's that's quite something special, but like most things, you know, when, when, when I look at back of being an athlete or a coach, sports scientist, you know, in sport, if you overdo it, you generally know, you, you know, when you've got recovery wrong, you, you can't run as fast, your reactions are slow, uh, etc. But when it comes to kind of the corporate world, in most cases, unless it's really physical or something catastrophic occurs, you don't really recognize fatigue sitting in. You don't recognize that you're not getting enough recovery because it's so gradual and the body keeps adapting to it. Uh, and so it's, it's a really, really hard thing for people to pick. And so I'm, I, I really love the fact that you are going out there and really supporting people because it needs to be a proactive approach. Yes. Because you don't yes. want to get yourself to burn out. You, you have to take this. And like anything in life, unless we see danger or unless something there, we're just going, oh, yeah, it's not going to happen to me. It's going to happen to me. And you keep pushing the boundaries and the boundaries and then bang, you wake up one day and go, how did I get here? Yes. Uh, yes. And it's very gradual, right? It's uh, very, very gradual. And then yeah. you wake up one day and, you, you, you know, your husband is like, listen, mate, you need to do something here. and We can't go on like this. Yeah. <laughs> do you know? Yeah. And, and look, it happens happens uh, on, on all genders as well. But uh, And obviously, you're fairly focused here. I, I, I love the title of your book, Octopus on a Treadmill, and I can visualize that. But for people out there, why did you choose that name? Uh, and, and so I have to give a credit to my husband. He's actually the one that came up with the name. Because um, <laughs> I was brainstorming, what am I going to call it? And he saw my life. He knew exactly what was going on. And and, and the moment he said it, I, I just knew that was it. So it, it, for the woman, you constantly have to be doing so many things because um, you are the center of a lot of people's lives. So there's a career, your wife, your mother, your sister, you know, all those things happening, um, uh, going on as well. Well, uh, but you don't even have the luxury of standing still to be able to evaluate your options and you're doing it on the move hence the treadmill so you have this eight arm movement of the octopus and you are doing it on the treadmill and that was what i was trying to illustrate with that title yeah beautiful <laughs> so now obviously you spend a lot of time with people are you doing a lot more proactive work or are you finding that you're more in the reactive state when people have already got themselves into kind of energy debt and and moving towards burnout phase. Yes, yeah, so it's more it's more um, reactive, you know, because people only seek me out when they're in trouble. 
<laughs> do you know and even when they're in trouble it's hard to get them to invest in themselves and say listen you need to take that time you know because women were brought up to think that our lives are supposed to be in service of the other lives around us so mm. when they take time for themselves what they're calling self-care they think that oh my god it's selfish and whatever whatever so women are not natural and particularly mothers right they're not natural clients to sit and look after themselves no so that is a difficulty I run into, even when, you know, they're, they're in that place where they're crying out for help. And I'm like, here I am. Let me help you. Even then, they're like, oh, no, oh, no, no. I, I've never done that. I've never. No, I can't do that. No. So so that is the challenge. Um, But on the proactive side, so the proactive work I do is when I go to corporates and I speak and um, I, I train, it allows them, it helps them to change the policies to support the women so they don't get to the burnout stage so so it it, it it is a bit of both but the most the individual work that i do with women that is reactive the proactive bit is the corporate speaking and training bit and, and so what what would be the core fundamentals of someone like you know you talking about women here who who might be leaders and they need to look after their well-being what are some of the real fundamentals that they need to be focusing on from a proactive point of view uh, to ensure mm. that they don't end up in their energy debt and hitting towards yeah. things like uh, burnout or chronic fatigue? Yeah. So I learned this School of Economics as a research years ago now. This is quite an old research about the things that uh, impact our well-being and they listed a whole raft. I, I just work on the top four. Voice enough, anything above that, people are not listening. Right. And so the first thing, it's your mental health, believe it or not, in terms of things that impact your well-being. Number one is mental health. Number two is your close personal relationships. Number three is your physical health, right? And number four is income, right? So income is number four, but that's not how we prioritize our lives. We put income on number one, hence the burnout. And so when I say to people is look at the sequence of this four mm. and set your priorities that way. So whatever decision you're making is like, how is this impacting my mental health? So before you accept that job offer, if it's going to mean that you're going to be traveling 90% of the time and you have a family and it's going to impact your close personal relationships, think about that decision again. But most of the time, well, for me, certainly when I was starting out, it was like, show me the money. Right. Um, but now I know better. So now it's not show me the money. And when we were talking about, you know, Gen Z, they're not about show me the money. They care more about their mental health. So they seem to have, you know, uh, got it right. But so if you get your priorities right on those four, if you structure your life that way, you can't go far wrong. That's number one in terms of making decisions. Um, the other thing is you have to understand that we are holistic beings. And so what you do in one part of your life affects the other. And so you can't just decide, okay, that's it. I'm going to take care of myself. I will go to the gym. I'll exercise that crazy. And that's it. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> do you know, the exercise is just one part of it. Do you know? So you have to look after the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual, because you need a spiritual framework, which is your mindset, your beliefs. Do you know what are your core beliefs? Do you think that things are happening to you or do you think that things are happening for you and that you have agency, right? So those things are the sort of things, if you get your head around, you're on your way to sorting out your well-being. Very good. 
I know something you talk about and uh, is deep in my heart as well is trying to set boundaries um, in the workplace and at home. Now, we've seen, as we've talked about already in here, we've seen a shift in the way people work. That there can get blended and uh, very quickly if you are working from home. So, so what are some things that people can do to ensure that they put boundaries in place to protect themselves um, as much as possible? Uh, from, yeah. from yeah. getting to that stage where fatigue and uh, burnout kicks in. Yeah, yeah. And thank you for bringing up boundaries because I could talk about boundaries until the cows came home, right? It's so important, particularly for women as well. So people out there think, and I remember years ago when I was young and some older woman said about boundaries, I'm not going to handle these are mean people think when they put boundaries in place they're mean people people feel when they say no to somebody they're being mean and that they have to say yes to everything that comes along which is absolutely rubbish so um and to be able to have boundaries and enforce your boundaries you have to have good self-esteem because without good self-esteem you cannot enforce the boundaries you have to believe that you're worth it you have to believe that your time for yourself is just as important as the time you give to somebody else and it is not just because you're giving time to somebody else it makes you a good person you can be a good person and be burnt out that's not what you want and you're you're better off being alive <laughs> right right then being burnt out and dead your children need you alive and that's why you have to put those boundaries in place so first of all you need the self-esteem to allow you to be able to put the boundaries in place and in terms of putting boundaries in place as well so people the mothers i work with they allow work and family to blend into each other that's not a good thing and when I say that, people think, oh, but you have to show flexibility at work. Yes, you have to show flexibility at work, but you shouldn't allow work to bleed into family and family to bleed into work. So when you're with your kids, you're with your kids. You're not with your kids with the phone beeping and the phone goes off and you just like little Jimmy is screaming for your help and you're on your phone. That is telling the child this is more important than you. Right. And so having that clear boundaries, because those things are affecting your, your child's self-esteem. You're telling your child, my work is more important than you when when you're playing the phone beans and whatever. So the boundary is if you, this is child's time, no phones, no laptops, you're fully focused on the kid. And when the phone rings, it's on speak or on uh, silent. And when you finish and it's work time fully focused on work and the child needs to understand mommy is working now and children need to understand the boundaries and if you, they see you operating with the boundaries it gives them confidence mm. for they themselves to be able to enforce their boundaries because children guess what they learn from you right so if you have nice healthy boundaries that's what you're giving to your children you're giving them that gift of don't let these things bleed into each other have those pristine boundaries Right? And also, when you have clear boundaries with self-esteem, guess what? People respect you more. They know not to mess about with your boundaries. And I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was um, working, I used to start late when I was in the corporate thing, you know, when I got confident enough in, <laughs> and could enforce my boundaries. Uh, any role I took, I'd say, you know, because of school, I will start late and leave. Uh, late. That was one way I was doing it. Or I will start early and leave early, right? The start late and leave late, I seem to that, that struggle with that as much. 
the start early, leave early, I struggle with that because basically people would be there and then at half or five o'clock I pick up my bag and I'm leaving and I wouldn't take any meetings past that. And everybody's at their desk and you're strolling out. It took confidence to do that, right? But I was able to enforce that boundary because I delivered at work. People knew whatever they gave me to do, I delivered. And they knew I wasn't taking the mickey. I will come in early when I said I was going to be there. And so I had the integrity in place to be able to enforce that boundary. So to be able to enforce boundaries, you need self-esteem. You need to be a person of integrity. And then you don't allow, you know, things to bleed into each other. Mm, I always talk about flexible boundaries and because as humans, we are boundary seeking um, beings in a way. Yeah. And, you yeah, know, we, yeah. we will keep going until, you know, someone gets us to stop or we fall off our bike or et cetera. <laughs> and hopefully we don't push it too far. Yes. And so I think that's really important. And like, <laughs> I find our child, Aroha, she is because both of us are working during the day and we, we're trying to find that balance. When do we don't, not work or, or work and trying to fit around meetings? But she knows, she knows, and she will let us know every time if she can see us with her going to do work. Mm. She, she gets really upset if she sees us working. And it's, mm. it's really, it's fascinating for such a young human being at 16 weeks, and she's been doing it for a few weeks now, where she will absolutely let you know. And so she knows something more than what we do at the moment. And, and yeah. I think that's something I definitely need to work on. Yeah, we know that, but it gets beaten out of us because we want to please, particularly women. We want to please because that is the currency, you know, uh, for getting on in society, for, for oiling the wheels. But I want to pick up on the point you said about flexible boundaries. And again, that's very important, you know, about one not bleeding into the other. And so the weekends are for work, blah, blah, blah. But if like when when I used to be in uh, program management, you know, sometimes you have a go live on a weekend. It's the only time you can go live and switch systems, right? So yes, weekends are sacred for family, but on the exception, you have to be flexible mm. and you need to communicate to the family. This weekend, I'm unavailable. I'm going live. Leave me alone. Don't come and talk to me because you will not have my attention. That is about communication yeah. as well. And so it's being able to switch things around. But whatever it is, is communicating to people around you so they know what is going on rather than you not communicating and the child coming in crying and the child feeling that you're, you're ignoring them. Hmm. I could keep talking for a very long time around this conversation. Uh, we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Oh my God. So I, like I told you, I, 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 I love new things. I'm one of those people. I'm a, what do they call them? Eternal learners, perpetual learners, something like that. They're called something. I'm always, you know, learning um, new things. And I read a book I recently called Moonwalking with Einstein and it's about memory and building your memory and stuff like that. And, and you know, a woman of a certain age, we say, um, uh, and people just assume that you get older, your memory uh, deteriorates and everything. I, I don't buy into that at all. Um, and so when I came across this book and then this is new techniques for memory, I thought, yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm busy learning about memory and memory palaces and how to, you know, meet however many people and be able to get their name quickly and all that kind of stuff. And I'm finding it fascinating. Moonwalking with Einstein. <laughs> Four, that's definitely yeah. on my list to get. <laughs> 
<laughs> what is one question that you would love to solve? I would love to solve the maternity issue for women. Three things. Um, the bit before they have children, right? Because it impacts, because you have women, the, because they're afraid of the impact the having children is going to have on their career, they keep deferring their decision and deferring their decision. And biology is not on our side. Right. And then before they think that they've got all their ducks lined up to have the children, suddenly they run into problems and then it's IVF and stress and all the rest of it. Do you know? Um, so I want um, a, a maternity solution in place that allows a woman to be able to have children when she's ready rather than when her career tells her she can have it. Mm -hmm. And also, so that's the first part as in when they, the, the, the conception there. And the second part is when they have the child, that it doesn't disrupt their career. Do you know? Um, so that is another place where it doesn't disrupt their career and they can still come in at the same level and continue. Uh, and also a lot of women hold themselves back. They will not go for that promotion because they want to be available for their children. Do you know? And so it doesn't cost them that promotion that they can still go in terms of their trajectory. So for me, that is what I want to solve. So the, it, it is... A matter of uh, a mixture between a financial um, uh, solution and a time solution, you know, that allows them, just like how a man is able to go through their career uninterrupted, children or not, I want women to be able to have the same luxury. And that is the question that I want to solve. Cool. It's a great question. And, and look forward to seeing it being solved over the, over the next few years. For you, what is an inspiring great leader? And who is a great example of this for you? Right, I'll give you two. <laughs> I give you two for the price of words. An inspiring great leader is somebody who puts their money where their mouth is. Right, they have their values and they're able to go and actually live those and shift it. So I give you so there's this a lady who used to be the foreign minister of Somaliland, and she's called um, Edna Ishmael. And um, when she was sixty, she actually took her pension and went and built a hospital and trained midwives so that they could go to the village because you know the child mortality was very high they could go to the village with these trained midwives and help them to to reduce that now i mean how many people you know at 60 at 60 people want to be taking it easy but take their pension this is putting your money where your mouth is you know and doing something that impacts humanity for me that is a great leader. Uh, the second one is um, Melinda French Gates. And again, she is pushing for women and she's an advocate for women. And they have these initiatives and they've opened a whole thing just for women. And I admire that sort of leadership where, again, is putting your money where your mouth is. She's done the corporate thing. She's seen what it costs women. And now she's there at the forefront with her resources pushing for gender parity that inspires me beautiful this has been a captivating conversation uh loving your passion uh how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you um so uh giftyri.com that's my website so i'm there and they can find you know everything they want about me uh, i don't know if i sent you my social media handles but you know because i don't know them off the top of my head <laughs> but normally on my website you will get um 
you will get uh, my social media handles as well. And if people want to work with me in terms of, of coaching, again, if you go to my website and you do coaching, you know, there's a free um, masterclass that you can take. And then if I'm your cup of tea, you know, we can uh, go from there. Um, but yeah, or read my book. Again, you get fuel for me. Excellent. Well, we'll put all those links into the show notes so people can find them easily. Gifty, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I, I love learning about your lineage and your, your heritage there in Ghana and the beautiful, I suppose, legacy that has been built over many generations around being a strong leader and the importance of woman equity and, and being able to make sure that we hold, put family kind of first and community there and we can still have those opportunities in careers your your work in thinking about the corporate space and how can we keep creating a space for our next generations i think is fascinating and i'm looking forward to learning more off you and i can't wait to actually read the book so you have really you. you have really excited me in that sense um so Thank i'm looking you. forward to seeing how your continued impact on this world and I know you are the right person to be solving the questions that you are asking. So thank you very much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me, Craig. Thank you. And I must say, I loved the questions that you asked because I do lots of podcasts. You know, your questions were insightful. They got me really, really engaged and energized. So thank you for the opportunity. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders Movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast, where the ordinary don't belong.